Welcome to the 55th episode of the Big Rhetorical Podcast. I'm your host, Charles Woods. Today is Monday, November 16th, 2020. Today's episode is the season three finale of the Big Rhetorical Podcast and features a discussion with the editors of Best of Rhetoric and Composition. Um, I think Best of is just kind of a, a chance to hold that in a moment, say what we notice, what's happening in different journals, um, and what kind of values we have as a field moving forward and where we're hoping it will expand or you know where maybe it's falling short. Um, but just taking stock of a, a moment that's kind of ongoing, but holding it for a second. Today's episode is a part of the big rhetorical podcast, Keystone Perspectives, a capstone podcast. This unique series of podcast episodes is a space specifically designed to highlight the life and career work of distinguished scholars and professionals working in rhetoric, writing studies, and technical communication. Scholars featured as a part of the Keystone Perspectives, a capstone podcast series are people who enjoy discussing the development of their scholarship, their pedagogy, and their service. You might remember our last Keystone Perspectives interview with Dr. Samantha Blackman from the spring. Brian Bailey is an assistant professor of English in the English and Communication Department at the University of Cincinnati, Blue Ash College. He has served as a co-editor and series editor of the Parlor Press series Best of Journals in Rhetoric and Composition. His current research focuses on protest rhetorics, racism, white supremacy, ecologies of writing, issues of free speech, public rhetorics, community publishing, and community writing. Christy Gerdhary is the Writing Center Director and a lecturer at Babson College in Wellesley, Massachusetts. She is currently working on a new oral history project that aims to safely uplift the voices of people who feel unheard in the media and to offer a historical record of communities' responses to violence in and around Boston. She also works closely with the Association for Writing Across the Curriculum, the International Writing Centers Association, and the Boston Rhetoric and Writing Network. Steve Parks is an Associate Professor of English at the University of Virginia. While editor of Reflections, he worked with Brian Bailey to create the best of journals and rhetoric and composition. While much of his early work on community literacy and activism was focused in Philadelphia and Syracuse, over the past five years, he has focused his work in the Middle East, North Africa, helping to found Syrians for Truth and Justice, as well as the Twiza Project. Jessica Palsik is Director of Writing and Assistant Professor of English at Texas A&M University Commerce. She was awarded a 2018 4Cs Emergent Researcher Award, and her dissertation received the 2018 Honorable Mention for the 4Cs James Berlin Outstanding Dissertation Award. Her current book project is entitled Writing from the Wrong Class, Archiving Labor in the Context of Precarity. Her work appears in C's, Community Literacy Journal, Literacy and Composition Studies, Labor History Today Podcast, Reflections, and more. Charlie Lesh is an assistant professor of English at Auburn University. He is currently completing a book project titled The Writing of Where, Graffiti and the Making of Rhetorical Spaces, a project that ethnographically explores the ways that graffiti writers in Boston make and unmake a variety of writing spaces throughout the city. The dissertation on which his book is based was awarded the 2017 Honorable Mention for the C's James Berlin Outstanding Dissertation Award. I hope you enjoy my conversation with the editors of the Best of Journals and Rhetoric and Composition, Brian, Christy, Steve, Jess, and Charlie. Christy Gerdhary, and I'm a lecturer at Babson College in Wellesley, Massachusetts, where I also direct the Writing Center, and I am a current series editor for Best Up. 
Hey, I'm uh, Charlie Lesh. I'm an assistant professor of English at Auburn University in Auburn, Alabama. And like Christy, I'm also a uh, series editor for Best Of. Yeah, I'm Jess Pauschek. Um, I'm an assistant professor and the director of writing at Texas A&M University Commerce. Um, and I'm also a series editor with Charlie and Christy. Uh, Steve Parks, University of Virginia. I was one of the folks who helped co-found the best of writing and rhetoric. I'm Brian Bailey. I uh, work and teach and research out of the University of Cincinnati Blue Ash College, which is a special sort of case situation as it's a regional two-year college uh, within the larger University of Cincinnati complex. Um, I'm also one of the folks that helped found the series. Um, and hopefully I will soon be associate professor Brian Bailey if tenure, if the tenure file goes through. <laughs> okay, go Brian. Um, okay, next question. In your own words, all right, try to limit yourself to a sentence or two. Um, what is best of? Yeah, so for me, best of is a collection of articles that have been selected by peers in our field and um, is representative of our values at that moment. Yeah, I think I think I have a similar kind of understanding to Christy. I think I often think of it as a sort of uh, a moment to kind of take stock of the really important work that's happening in our field, but then also like I think the way that we've tried to approach it is also thinking forward a little bit. Like, what are the conversations that are kind of coming in the field? What's the type of research and teaching that we think we need now? So a kind of reflective, but also uh, forward-looking um, opportunity for the field is the way I've often thought about it. Yeah, I'd agree with that. I like the idea of, um, you know, a reflection of, on one particular moment. Um, it's as our field keeps growing and producing more articles, um, I think best of is just kind of a, a chance to hold that in a moment, say what we notice, what's happening in different journals, um, and what kind of values we have as a field moving forward and where we're hoping it will expand or, you know, where maybe it's falling short. Um, but just taking stock of a, a moment that's kind of ongoing, but holding it for a second. I would say it. It's an attempt to show the variety of scholarship that happens in the field, but it's also an attempt to democratize who decides what's the best writing in the field. I agree a lot with Steve. That's one of the reasons that we started it back at uh, Syracuse University was because we wanted to see this democratization of the field. And for someone like myself, who is a, a first generation um, graduate student, I, I thought that was really important uh, because of what I was seeing around me in the field at the time and also because of the context of going to school at a private uh, research university. Um, so I thought that it was really important to get involved in the project. And that's what it is to me is this, uh, this constant push to make the field more egalitarian and more inclusive, uh, which is hopefully we've helped with the gaining a scene that seems to be occurring or coming to a head now uh, with the total social political milieu of the United States, uh, as well as our field, hopefully that's, uh, we, we had a small part in that conversation. Excellent. So you talked a little bit about democratically choosing what's the best articles in the field. Brian and Steve, this question might be for you, but what other exigencies drove the development of this work when it started? Well, at the time when we were doing reflections, you began to notice that four Cs, less and less journals were being represented at the conference. Um, there was a period at which almost anybody who had even just like a horse staple journal could get a table. And when you went into the exhibition room, you would see like 30 or 40 journals. You would see the editors. It was a very robust culture. As austerity began to hit the universities and as four Cs turned the exhibition room into more of a sort of a money-making enterprise. Um, journals could not get space at the conference, and they also couldn't get funding at their university. So because of a variety of reasons, we were able to afford a table at Reflections, and we would get a lot of subscriptions. And I just began talking to the editors who were telling me about they were getting no support, and also no when they were getting no support from the universities, they had no support at the conference, and they were in bad shape. So the initial motivation was to um, create a publication which would highlight all of the journals. 
so the, the grad students would get a sense of the field. And then to use the best of category so that articles selected could be leveraged at the home institutions to get increased funding. Like we are publishing some of the best articles in the field. We deserve some funding. And then I think Brian and I both felt that publications in the terms of austerity and sort of an elitism within the discipline, less and less voices were being heard. And a whole generation of scholars were having no impact on what was being published because of labor conditions. So we thought by creating a system where grad students, part-timers, adjuncts, full-time, everybody could choose was both a way of saying, here's the whole community of scholars, and to give them a platform to try to push forward what they think should be represented in the scholarship. You want to add? I think that's where we were when we first started, right? Yeah, we were. And we were also very much into talking about what can we do here? Because Steve and I, I was taking a class at Steve at the time, I think, when he first came up with this idea. Uh, and he's like, was anybody interested? In, you know, is anybody interested in doing this? And most of my class winced because they're like, oh my God, you're grad students, we feel overwhelmed. But again, like I said in my first overly long answer, I was really aware of the different sort of environment I was in. Uh, I had gone to a big, you know, comprehensive state school to get my um, undergraduate in, in my MA uh, in California. And so uh, we felt like, I felt anyways, it was like a real part of a DIY, like I'm in this position, here's where I'm at. I've got a senior faculty member who's willing to take me on um, to show me how to do this stuff, but also to, again, you know, uh, get more voices out there, um, as well as seeing it as like a way, especially with these the introductory courses I was taking and the survey courses at the time, you know, to the, the larger discipline, um, just the idea that it was really clear there were just a lot of folks who were, who were left out. You know, the, the focus of a lot of the classes, you know, the great sort of Here's modern rhetorical theory was like a march through, I think like, I don't know, Scottish sort of rhetors, <laughs> you know, in uh, the 1960s or 70s, and it's just a lot of, it was just a lot of like, there aren't these many voices out there, and so I felt like, you know, this was a chance to really do something and to use the resources that I had available to me because we also knew that we could get. Um, the backing through Steve's connections to get this published and to get it out, to get it with the press. Um, and if need be, we could um, tap what was then called the writing program, um, as well as uh, CCR for any sort of extra funds we might need or monies we could use. And uh, basically um, redistribute and rework those resources that stayed in that ecosystem of the hill uh, where Syracuse University is at, and what the campus is often called in that section of the city. Uh, and moving it to a bigger, wider, larger ecosystem that we thought would be working for a much more um, just uh, purpose and goal. Um, I just want one thing to add on to that. First, I think we shouldn't talk too long without sort of acknowledging Dave Blakesley, who agreed to publish it and has continued to publish it. Um, and has basically any idea we've had, at least when I was doing it, he was always saying yes. Um, I kind of think he's an unsung hero in the reinvented publishing and made it accessible. Um, I wanted one point about why we did the reading groups. It's kind of related to what Brian said when he said, you know, as a first generation new grad student, he was one of the few people who took me up on my offer. I think um, the field mystifies publishing and makes it seem something unattainable or elitist, only the few can do it. And one of the goals of having these reading groups throughout the country which they know it's really just people sitting together talking about what they think good writing in the field needs. And you can be part of that conversation and you can be part of it. If you're adjunct, grad student, full time professor, um, we all have something valuable to say. And I think that was part of the idea was to say, you know, publishing is a collective enterprise and we are stronger when the whole collective participates. So, Steve and Brian, now that you've been doing this work for 10 plus years now, uh, maybe a, a question, a retrospective question. What are some of the takeaways from the scholarship and the field as this work moves into its second decade? Um, some of the takeaways, again, I, I think are related to um, how small the actual field still is and how few venues there are for publication. Um, as well as even though the myth is that we're sort of this egalitarian field and 
uh, we broke away from big bad literature that's you know high minded and high handed with everybody. Um, yeah, there's still that sort of that sense going on with a lot of the spaces that are um, the venues for publication. Um, so by working on this for as long as I did, I, I think that what I saw was there are a plethora of journals out there that also open up the conversation in total about uh, what's important and what counts as scholarship within the field. Um, so especially as somebody like myself, who's done a lot of writing with um, composition and the idea of ecosystems of writing, and how that affects activism. Um, it turns out that a lot of my presentations at places like Four Cs and even RSA are, are poorly attended because it's just not really the focus of other, either of those organizations, but they still put panels on. And I found, especially since we're talking about two flagship conferences there, that their publishing arms are essentially the same. I mean, yes, you'll get one or two of those articles out there, but, you know, they don't really, that's not really their focus, or it doesn't seem to be to me anyways, or didn't at the time, I should say. And this is anecdotal, so take what I say with a grain of salt. But by being exposed to that, I think we also opened up the rest, a lot of readers, as they were reading and making choices, and a lot of folks, the concept of there are a number of journals out there. They might not have the cultural capital within the discipline or the disciplinary capital within the discipline, but they're out there and there are spots for you to write um, and they're good journals and they're run by good folks. And it's just as rigorous as these other publications. They just don't have the brand as of yet or maybe never will because of their niche. So that was my big takeaway was understanding how big the venues or the number of venues, I should say, that were out there for people wanting to write, which also helped me in the concept of demystifying um, the publication process. Uh, because then suddenly I didn't see just four journals available to publish in. I saw 25. I saw 30 journals to publish in, um, places where my work would be more welcome and places where I would get um, feedback from those, those, those journals, those readers in those journals um, that would actually be productive and help, uh, you know, in my thinking as a scholar myself. And hopefully that also, and since I'm the fulcrum of all existence, let's face it, um, that was also something I, I assumed would also happen with other people working on uh, working as readers, as well as reading the actual anthology itself. They would suddenly be turned on to the fact like, wow, look at all these journals. I, I don't have to wait seven years for C's to finally get back to me or college English or, you know, rhetorica. I think I have a couple of takeaways. Uh, one is I had this hope that if we opened up people being involved in choosing the essays, that it would sort of also open up opportunity for people to step into editorial roles, um, particularly like what I call the next generation, like you know, the people in grad school or just out of grad school. So, you know, I think the fact that Charlie, Jess, and Christy are now editing it kind of speaks to a success of the journal, of, of the whole enterprise, because we have like next generation scholars rethinking it, transforming it. So I'm very, uh, I'm very happy or proud about that. Um, I think the other thing that happened is that when you saw all the journals in one space and you saw all the nominations come in, you also really began to see evidence of the fact that it's a field that publishes overwhelmingly white research one scholars. And in the opening years, you saw a lot of people default pick Dave Bartholomew again for the fifth year. Um, and we had to do some policy changes for that. Um, but I think like that's another thing the best of his sort of demonstrated that we need to open up authorship to wider sets of people. Um, and part of that then is having people define the best differently. That it's not just the essay on student writing in a freshman one research class. It's the African-American study of a church. It's the sort of Latinx decolonial enterprise sort of as situated in a community project. And I think the best of has done really good on that. Um, I think the, the final takeaway is and this is going to seem kind of hokey, but, you know, it really was just an idea cooked up over lunch at Seas. Like, it wasn't like we had some grant. It's become much better and bigger under the new editors, I think, than we imagined it would be. And I think what that can show is that, you know, no matter the position you're in, if you have an idea and you build the allies and you argue, you can actually affect some sort of change. And I think too many young professors are taught that the field is dying and static and they're going to be whatever. 
And I like to think that this next generation will take their ideas and like force them into the field and transform it. In a certain way, the best have modeled one way of doing that. So, Steve, you mentioned that the new editors are, are kind of taken in a different directions, and that means that some of the goals have changed. So I'm going to ask this question and then just let whoever wants to jump in ask. So how have the original goals changed with the new editors? I think um, I'll go ahead and say, you know, I started uh, Best Of, similar to Brian, um, working with Steve in a graduate class where, you know, we were all uh, given the opportunity um, to work on this. And, um, you know, I went forward with it, I think in 2014, maybe. Um, and what was really interesting to me is that if you think of, right, so Steve mentioned demystifying um, publishing, but I think it's also important to think about like how publishing, for instance, in smaller journals like Reflections or Community Literacy Journal, those journals aren't always noted in, for instance, database searches. So you might look up kind of keywords and composition and rhetoric in a library database, but smaller independent journals don't always have that same access to those database to get their um, journals kind of represented there. Um, or if they're not open access yet, like that creates another level. So for me, you know, thinking of being part of Best Of, I got to see journals that I never knew even existed. Um, and then what I was really interested in, and as I've grown with this role, um, I wanted to see how people could use it um, in the way that I was able to use it. So thinking about research methods, for instance, like not just demystifying publishing, but how do you demystify writing an article and choosing methods to write an article? Or like, how do you get that research done? How do you do an interview? So one of the things we've been able to do is actually kind of step back and ask authors, like, how do you come to this idea? What was the origin of the article? How did you actually choose research methods? Did you do coding? Did you interview people? Uh, did you do an ethnography? And so like actually demystifying that part of the process as well. Um, and since I started work on this as a graduate student, that was really useful to me thinking about my own research, like how, um, how does research happen? And then it doesn't just magically appear in the journal, right? There's all these processes. Um, and so that's kind of something that we've started building into it. Yeah, just to add on to what Jess said, I was also, I think as a graduate student, some of the most meaningful um, experiences I had was when we kind of got that behind the scenes look at a scholar's process, um, learning about their methods, and also that just because it's published, the work isn't done, and how um, when we have our um, writers now kind of reflecting on their piece. We also ask for discussion questions, and that also kind of takes us into kind of our current moment that this piece, you know, I wrote this piece, you know, for graduate students, when you learn that it took two years to actually get published or something, you're like, oh no, but it's also a moment to be like, okay, two years ago, I was in this headspace. Um, now I have an opportunity to say, you know, right now, these are the kinds of questions I would go back and ask and have you all take up right now, which I always find really exciting to do. So, Charlie, I want to ask, how did you get involved with Best Of? Yeah, I was actually just about to jump in. So I, Excellent. Um, like uh, Steve was saying, one of the cool things um, about this, for me about this project was I started um, as a reading group member. So I was in a group that was helping select um, articles for I think the best of 2017. And, uh, you know, I was, when I was a graduate student, I was in, I was in kind of desperate need of this demystification <laughs> that we're talking about. Like, I was so kind of naive. I remember Christy was actually my office mate in graduate school. And there was literally a moment when I walked in after a class and I was like, what is rhetoric and composition? Like, can you explain it to me really quickly? Like I had no clue. I'd never, I didn't know anyone who had done a PhD. I was just really kind of a fish out of water. And so best of was like Steve was saying for me, this really cool opportunity to kind of like, oh, I can have a say in what I think is really important and valuable work in the field. And that really did mean a lot to me. So um, when I um, kind of, you know, with Jess and Christy took over as series editors, I think we really wanted to kind of amplify that demystification whenever we can. And I, I've had like a really 
good time getting back those supplemental materials from authors, which we actually published directly with the articles in the collection. So before you actually encounter the article, you encounter the sort of reflective piece that the um, authors contribute. And I think it was really rewarding for me because, you know, I always think about my own research as like, I kind of just came upon this idea or I stumbled into this thing or wait, is this really a research project? You know, I, my current work is a lot about graffiti writing, which was kind of a personal interest of mine that I never really saw it intersecting with scholarly thinking. So for me, it was really cool to see these scholars who I, who I really respected and loved and read their work and admired and seeing them kind of talk about research in a similar kind of like moment of serendipity, right? Where like, oh yeah, I came upon this project in X way and this is how it kind of developed. So um, yeah, for me, it was just kind of extending the work um, that Steve and Brian have been talking about and trying to kind of formalize it in the supplemental materials. That was kind of my major priority when I moved into the role as series editor. To me, as an outsider, if, I think one of the things I'm realizing is that the way that we're just demystifying publishing is through our dem democratic process of choosing best of, right? That, that, that's one of the major systems that you all, that, I'm sorry, that's one of the major goals that you all have and how you're reaching that goal. So I want to talk a little bit about how articles are chosen for this collection. Um, maybe you could jump in and explain how it works. Speaking even just to this year's process, um, we have a list of just over 40 rhetoric and composition journals, and we reach out to all of the editors and we ask if they are interested in participating. Um, so, I mean, everyone, everyone we can think of that would be interested in participating um, from Enculturation, Kairos, the Journal of Second Language Writing, um, the Writing Center Journal, um, and basically, all journal editors are invited to submit what they think are the top two articles from the past year. For some editors, this means having a board meeting. This means um, kind of deliberating what they think their top two are. Um, for others, they don't, they don't have boards. They are um, kind of thinking back to what made kind of the the most impact for them or um, what they thought was representative of what their journal was offering that year. Um, after they make their two selections, they submit them to us with just a brief rationale of why they were selected. That is just an in-house document. Um, and then um, after we get all of their submissions, we um, organize those and get them ready for our reading groups, which I'll let Charlie talk about um, how that process works. Yeah, so then um, at that point, what I essentially do is I take the reading groups that we um, form through either soliciting emails or people, folks who have run reading groups in the past. Um, we've been really fortunate that the reading groups have remained really diverse in terms of like institutional affiliation. We have graduate students, um, all ranks of faculty are represented, um, dual credit high school instructors. You know, we have a really good um, kind of broad set of readers that are making these judgments. Um, Christy basically tells me that all the nomination um, are submitted. And then I assign um, each article to two separate reading groups. So there's overlap. Um, we have a kind of, uh, like a sample scoring system that they can use if they need it. Um, but what we've really been committed to, and I think this speaks to the more democratic impulses of the collection, has been to let reading groups kind of determine on their own how they want to assess this work, how they want to define what is the best of, and then offer us in return some sort of rationale for the rankings that they end up coming up with. So, um, you know, we kind of, hey, if you need help steering the conversations with reading group members, here's some sense of the way we might approach it, um, but really we do want to leave that up to you. So reading group leaders then distribute um, the articles to their uh, members. They deliberate, they read, they argue, and then we get a really fun and cool representation of those deliberations in the write-up that the reading group member sends to me. Um, once we get that, we kind of aggregate all of the rankings and the final you know, 10 to 12 articles that we end up submitting come out directly out of that process.
Would you like to join Charles in the Big Rhetorical Podcast? The podcast is booking for next season now. The Big Rhetorical Podcast offers participants the opportunity to contribute to ongoing conversations within our disciplines and beyond. This record of conversations eventually will be a digital archive with the potential to impact the knowledge-making and rhetoric, writing studies, and technical communication, as well as adjacent fields. Do you have a new book coming out? Are you hitting the job market this cycle? The Big Rhetorical Podcast wants to talk to you. The Big Rhetorical Podcast core ideals are similar to a community-based writing project, with an emphasis on inclusivity and localizing knowledge and in strengthening relationships among peers. Make sure to check out our back catalog of episodes, as well as listen to our new podcast each week wherever you listen to your podcast. If you have questions about The Big Rhetorical Podcast, please submit a form at the website www.thebigrhetoricalpodcast.weebly.com. You can also find The Big Rhetorical Podcast on Twitter at The Big Ret. Follow the podcast on Facebook or email us at thebigrhetorical at gmail.com. Since you all, Charlie, Jess, and Christy, got involved as graduate students working with Best Of, I know that working with graduate students is important. So how do you get graduate students involved with working with the journal? There's two main ways that we have graduate students working. Um, The first is that, I mean, any graduate student that's interested is invited to join a reading group. So um, right now we've been kind of mostly working through our networks, but you know we're interested in getting as many perspectives, as many as many readers as we can. Um, and I think Jess can speak more to um, actually working with graduate students in a more formal context, and maybe Steve when they um, have a graduate course where Best of becomes a part of that. Um, but I'll just say on my end, um, I. Um, I work kind of overseeing our graduate student associate editors. So we have a few graduate students who take on a more formal role that help us with things like uh, collecting and organizing journal submissions and permissions. And um, a big thing that happens is they eventually collaborate and co-write the introduction to the collection. So this gives um, graduate students experience in this type of writing, which is pretty different, I think. Um, It gives them a sense of um, what it it looks like to be kind of a best article. Um, I think we've talked a lot about demystifying that process. Um, So for graduate students um, trying to understand their place in the scholarship, it gives them a look into all of the articles that have been named the best Um, And I think that'll be kind of hopefully useful down the line when they're looking to publish. And then um, with the process of actually writing um, an introduction that gives them, it gives them a publication, it gives them a line on their CV. And um, we're kind of the three of us are here to help um, facilitate that role. But our graduate students, like they, we really want them to make that publication their own. They really have some ownership over that. And while I might help them facilitate, like this is how you get started with co-writing um, an introduction like this. Um, we really leave it up to them to leave their mark on on that specific collection. Yeah, and just to chime in with what Christy said, um, I think this is one of the best things um, for me as a graduate student in Steve's class that I had access to was, you know, uh, the year that I worked on it, um, I think Jim Seitz was the introduction co-author, but it was a chance for us to actually work with a scholar, right? So as a graduate student, you're like, oh my gosh, I get to write with this person in the field, already doing the work, right? And so I think that was really um, wonderful, and it was a chance to kind of access um, the field in a different way. Um, It was also a chance, you know, for instance, as a graduate student, being able to use these materials um, on your comprehensive exams, for instance, because you're you're part of it in some ways. Like it feels like you understand the field better when you're actually talking to the people writing the articles and you understand kind of where they're coming from and you're you you feel part of it, 
So I think that really influenced me with, you know, comprehensive exams and my dissertation of like thinking about what's out there as opposed to it, you know, being in uncharted territory where, you know, you don't even know these journals exist. Um, so that was kind of my goal is continuing that um, kind of legacy that Steve and Brian started of, you know, making sure graduate students are part of it. Um, and then also kind of continuing to include that, um, you know, Steve mentioned earlier on, like thinking about uh, which authors were published. And I think too, again, you know, making sure that the institutions that are represented is really important. So, you know, um, for instance, Charlie's at Auburn, um, Research One, I'm at Texas A&M University of Commerce, um, which is not. So even getting both of our graduate students involved in the same process is really cool. Um, and it shows kind of that democratic process and getting graduate students from multiple levels involved in a publication, I think has been really useful. Just in terms of graduate students, I always think grad school sort of incarnates like self-doubt and insecurity early into the system. So I always think it's important within one of their opening classes to give graduate students a role where they have agency so they can see the difference between what it means to be a professional with agency versus being taught to not to be someone who's always afraid to speak. I mean, I think when grad students are involved, that's something they can learn that gives them a better ethical compass to navigate their education. So that's another thing I always liked about it. I, when I was uh, doing the same type of work, one of the things I would often get would be thank you emails, um, not just from grad students, but even um, people who are either non-tenure track or on the tenure track who would be leading these reading groups and getting their, their colleagues to, to work with them. And so what you also see is what Steve was just talking about with that concept of agency and that inculcation of inadequacy. Um, that follows a lot of folks out of grad school, especially if they don't make it to that R1, right? And so I would get these emails from places, um, I won't name names, but all the institutions like Eastern Michigan University or Central Michigan University. Those are the two that pop out to me because we had reading groups one year at both campuses. Um, and they were really into and really thankful for doing that because they were talking about how the folks that they were including, um, who were their their um, contingent faculty or their um, non-tenure track faculty and even their new assistant professors really felt that suddenly like just like we're talking about with the grad students here that they had a voice and that they were participating in the field and that they were a part of the field uh, in ways they didn't feel uh, you know welcome when they were in grad school and felt even less so because they weren't in an institution that mirrored whatever grad school they went to did not match you know, the, uh, the bona fides or the reputation of the brand of the school they went to for grad school. Yeah, I think, uh, Brian, just to add on that, I mean, what's been really wonderful to see um, as a series editor is just how um, generous and excited the scholars are who are recommended for this or are chosen. Um, and everyone is so excited to be able to talk more about their research, right? You know, we have some awards in the field and um, different opportunities to kind of be recognized, but this is really a chance to recognize 10 to 15, you know, people or authors and, and scholars um, from a variety of journals where I think people are, they want to go out of their way to kind of say like, yes, I'll do anything you want. Do you want to do an interview or do you want to do, of course, I'll talk about my methods. Like, I think there's a real spirit of generosity for people who are part of this project um, and are chosen. And I think that really speaks to how much this field, there's so many people who want to share their work and make it accessible um, in a way that lives beyond just like reading the print, right? How many of us write an essay, get published, and then you're like, well, did anyone ever read it? Will anyone read it? Um, and you don't really know. And this gives a chance that even if you're not chosen to be, you know, one of the top 10 or 12, even if you're recommended, you have a guaranteed readership, which is really cool. And people kind of take that up in different ways. They cite it, they talk about it. Um, so I think that's a really cool aspect from this. How has Best of become more diverse and worked to be inclusive over the years? And what are your plans for addressing inequities in our current cultural moment? I think one of the things that Charlie, Christy, and I have tried to do to make it more diverse is really kind of reach out. Um, I think diversity and inclusion expand, um, 
really spans a lot of ideas, right? So Brian mentioned this and then Charlie as well, a bit about all of um, them being first generation students. And I would say, you know, I, I come from that background as well and a working class student. So I think diversity is really important to us. Um, thinking about how we get multiple levels of writers from graduate students to writers and readers involved. Um, so for instance, I work with a lot of um, dual credit instructors as well as graduate students who are first generation students. Um, so even having them be part of the reading groups is really important. Um, one of the things that I do in my classes here at AM Commerce is I hold reading groups um, and I don't take part in the ranking, but I hold reading groups through my classes, um, as well as through my role as director of writing as professional development opportunities, but that are open to everyone. So, um, it, you know, if this is your first semester teaching and, and the field is brand new to you, as well as, you know, if you're writing your dissertation in rhetoric and composition, um, similarly, like I said, we have dual credit instructors who are high school teachers as well as college teachers. So I think diversity, um, it comes up in a lot of ways, specifically thinking about who we include in this process, who has access to it, um, and how they're able to shape what scholarship is recognized as the best and what we um, appreciate in the, in those articles. Yeah, I think another, I mean, just to echo kind of what Jess was just talking about, I think another way that I've been thinking about this more recently is um, thinking about like the language that we communicate with the reading groups because you know as much as we do um, want to create reading groups of spaces for folks to deliberate in their own ways and you know we really want the rankings to be situated and local whenever they can be but asking them to kind of think about you know what are the um, the articles that we do uh, that we distributed to you how are they advancing particular visions of diversity and inclusion right so we include that when we um, when we distribute, or I include that when I distribute the uh, articles to the reading groups, and we've gotten back, I think, really rich um, and interesting discussions about how diversity is showing up in a lot of different ways in the articles, what's their vision for the collection as a whole, and, um, you know, where are those things, um, where those things could go from here. So I think one of the things that we've really done recently is get the reading groups to communicate to us their own thinking on diversity inclusion, how that's showing up or frankly not showing up in the articles that we're distributing, the articles that are being nominated. And then we take that feedback and kind of think, how can we, um, how can we do better from here? How can we think about these in different ways? So again, a kind of local bottom up discussion of diversity inclusion, I think it's been really rich in terms of um, the editorial process. I think, too, just to um, add one more thing, you know, this is something that Steve and Brian both brought up earlier on, but thinking about um, best of is open to any journal in, in composition and rhetoric. And I think diversity and inclusion also extends to the research methods we're using, um, the scholars who are represented in the journals, and then even the genres that are present. So, for instance, um, you know, the, a research article can look differently based on the journal, right? And what you see in, in C's as, as the same as RSQ might be different than what you see in Kairos that uses um, multimodal work or enculturation or now the Journal of Multimodal Rhetorics. Um, and so I think that's been really interesting of thinking about diversity and inclusion in terms of like how articles are written, what's considered an article what um, genres we're open to in the field. And that's, I, I think, really expanded in recent years, um, you know, especially with the inclusion of um, the new journal Craft, um, the journal Mar Multimodal Rhetorics, the Rhetoric of um, Health and Medicine. So I, I think there's a real um, opportunity for the field right now, as I think this was the hope of, you know, Brian and Steve said, but how our journals are even expanding with what we consider to be academic research, what methods are included, what people we talk about, how we um, talk about, uh, you know, our research um, and the way that that's showcased in journals differently. As Best Of continues on, how do you all hope this work gets taken up in classrooms and graduate training, things like that? I'll go ahead and pick up on that because um, that's something I'm really working on here um, at AM Commerce is thinking about as director of writing, um, 
you know, I think it might be different at, you know, for instance, getting my degree at Syracuse, we had a writing program. Um, it was a composition and cultural rhetoric program. Whereas here I work in an English department um, where some of my first year writing instructors are linguistic students. Some of them are literature students. Some of them are rhetoric and composition. Some are film. And so you have kind of different students um, teaching writing for the first time. Um, and so for me, thinking about how I can use best of in my classes and in my professional development training as kind of an entry point. And again, it's not the field, right? But it's one kind of articulation of a field at a given moment. Um, and kind of say like, here's your, your, here, your introduction to a field. Here's, you know, some of the diversity of it, some of the uniqueness. Um, and using that in my classes, such as um, I teach a teaching colloquium every fall, um, where it's these brand new teachers, you know, for the first time having to be put in a 1301 class um, and trying to figure out, like, where do I enter this field that I don't, some of, sometimes they know nothing about. This has been a really great opportunity to kind of give them a starting point um, that is not just, you know, all right, let's start with the Dartmouth conference or let's start with Berlin and Crowley and like, let's go back. Like, this is a moment of right now. Here's kind of the best, the coolest, the most innovative scholarship that's happening. And here's your entry point. Um, again, it's just like one opportunity. Um, it's also been really useful for me to use as professional development because I think there's so many people who want to be involved um, in these processes, right? You know, Steve and, and Brian talked about this a lot, but I think people want to participate in a field and they want to know um, what it's like. They want to be part of shaping it and shaping the community that they're part of, but they might not always know how to. Um, and so using this as a professional development um, opportunity where we actually build reading groups into, you know, kind of those spaces has been really helpful. Um, I'll say, too, that um, so I work at um, a smaller business school and a lot of our writing faculty, um, they have backgrounds in literature or creative writing. And so they don't have the rhetoric and composition background. And just to kind of echo what Jess is saying, that the Best of Collection offers almost like just like a page of here's what's going on in this field that you might not even know much about right now. Um, it's also a way, so I, we have the Boston Rhetoric and Writing Network, and it's a way for writing teachers across the city and in our area to have like a common text to talk about. A lot of our writing faculty we have found feel pretty isolated in their jobs, um, especially if they're adjunct and they're going from institution to institution. They don't have time to read the journals. They don't have time or resources to go to the conferences. So this is kind of like, if we can say this is the best, it travels well and offers you discussion questions, offers you entrances into the text. Um, it really kind of makes for a convenient form of professional development. I should say too, um, and maybe Steve wants to um, say something about this, but one of the other really great things about this, um, you know, any of the money that we get from selling Best Of constantly goes back into journals. So Steve was talking about how at conferences, you know, journals are represented. Um, Dave Blakesley at Parlor Press has been so great about making sure how any money from the best of goes back into those conferences, um, getting journals, you know, booths to be represented so that we can represent all the smaller journals, especially that might not have that funding. Um, and so in that way, it kind of is a, a chance to rejuvenate the field each year. Um, I don't know if Steve, if you want to say something more about that. I would just add that, you know, one of the initial motivations was the fact that the conference, which represents our field, was inaccessible to the journals which establish our field. So our goal was to take the proceeds from the book and to enable them to at least have a table. And I think it's true every year since the anthologies come out, there's always been a table where the journals can represent and advertise their sort of work. So I think that's sort of an interest. And Dave just lets us have the profits, which is another great thing about him. So, yeah, I think that's a that's an important point that Jess brought up. 
one way I, I've always hoped, and I know it has taken up uh, at the institution where I did my master's, Cal State San Bernardino, they actually took up at least one quarter. They were on the quarter system at the time, used the best of in their um, the MA class they have about publishing in Comfort. Um, and so everything everybody said, yes, absolutely true, 100 percent. You know, I'm, I'm, I'm with them. But also, um, again, by using a book in that way, you're also showing and again, going back to that concept of demystifying the publication process. Um, showing that, you know, that there's, you know, the class itself is designed to do that, but then also showing that there are a plethora of journals to go to, right? There are a plethora of places to put your work into. And as you said, some of these journals are actually journals that help establish the field. Um, so, you know, they might, students at the time might actually have been, that might have been the way they realized, oh, what was then called uh, the writing news, uh, the writing lab newsletter was still out, not this thing that existed you know, past tense and had somehow just sort of petered out and died. Um, and so that was one of the, this is the way I always hope it's taken up too, because I think in a way by doing that sort of thing, it becomes this moment uh, that the, the series becomes this moment of collective memory. And it's this way to recall actually where the field's been because we're still including these, uh, these publications that have at times been overlooked or the field itself is sort of moved to a point where that's just not in vogue, right? So, you know, maybe high theory is in at the time. A lot of people are looking at post-structuralism or continental theory, or maybe we're getting away from that and going into decolonialism, uh, decolonial theory. But at the same time, while all those perspectives are important and good, and it makes the field what it is, which is this robust, rich field that's ready to be reflective um, and reflexive, uh, the problem becomes that then we tend to think of everything as sort of stopped, I think, especially as grad students, or at least this is what I experienced as a grad student at first, was like, this was a definite time in the field's history. These publications are now gone. This is a definite time in this this later epoch in the field's history. And now these theorists and these writers and these journals are gone. And so I think it's this, the anthology itself becomes this amazing moment of memory and a, of a collective memory that we can hang on to as well as a way to, to, again, remember like, oh yeah, and that still exists and people are still concerned with that. And maybe that has these new intersections that uh, we haven't thought of yet because we forgot about that. And that meets really well with these ideas of uh, decolonialization or you know uh, ideas of uh, what happens post-empire or how is writing used uh, in moments of protest, any of those sorts of things, you can suddenly have this sort of fresh perspective very fruitful sort of moment uh, because that memory, that time capsule, that whatever you want to call it, that the anthology serves as. Um, so that was really roundabout. I'm sorry for the long answer, but uh, it just all this good conversation suddenly just I had this moment where I'm like, oh my God, I never thought of it that way. <laughs> you really, Brian, you really convinced oh. me. Now I want someone to write a dissertation about best of, right? Like, all right, you have this, I think Christy said it earlier, you have this like archive or what you're calling collective memory of like a moment. Now someone just needs to write about it. It is interesting too, like to build on that. Like I remember when I was first introduced to, introduced to the, the collection in graduate school, like the, the idea of best of really stood out to me. Like, well, okay, what do you like best of? That seems very lofty and big and, you know, whatever. But now like the way kind of my experience as an editor of it, it's really kind of made me think that the descriptor is really important, right? Because it's really saying like, this is the best of as determined by these local reading groups that span a really broad um, subsection of the field, right? And in that case, then the determination of best of, I think is this really kind of empowering and important descriptor of like, what is the best of as determined um, locally, as opposed to like what shows up in the top two journals in the field and let that sort of stand uncritically as this is the most important work because it's showing up in these two journals or whatever it is. Do you see what I'm saying? So it kind of like takes that notion of like what is the best and kind of subverts it through the sort of processes that Steve and Brian and all of the um, folks who were involved early on set up. And so I think now I've grown to really like that idea of the best of, whereas at first it kind of stood out to me. And I think that it can be really uh, generative in its sort of um, provocative nature, I guess. So good job naming it, whoever named the collection, <laughs> whatever they did. Well, it wasn't me. At <laughs> 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 least one other person. <laughs> what are some of the things you all have noticed about submissions recently, in the recent years? What has been the most pressing work for our field? 
Um, you know, I will say that um, the submissions do tend to mirror our social and political experience of that time. So we've definitely seen a lot more submissions um, involving community literacy work, decolonial scholarship, um, but we also see new takes on more traditional classroom pedagogy, which is all, all of it is very exciting. Um, yeah, I'll let, I'll let others jump in. Yeah, I think, you know, one of the things that I've been excited to see is, you know, we even have to kind of think about our, our publishing process with, you know, the creation of more multimodal um, journals, uh, such as the journal Multimodal Rhetorics, or, you know, thinking about born digital work, um, and how that's represented, um, you know, graphic novels, and how do you represent that? Um, so we, that's something that we're constantly navigating of how do we change with the field. Um, but I think that's something that we're noticing a lot is how even this print, um, what, what was previously only a print anthology, now we're thinking about it digitally and thinking about representing um, different practices of publishing and how that's even changing. Yeah, that just reminded me, Jess had brought up the um, Journal of Rhetoric and Health Medicine earlier, and I just want to say that we are also seeing new journals pop up that find us and they want to be involved. And um, the journal uh, Rhetoric and Health Medicine contacted us last year and one of their articles was actually selected. And on my end, why that sticks out to me is because like, while I don't think I would have like casually come across this journal in my research, um, now, like given pandemic times and everything, I'm like, oh yeah, like I gotta, I gotta check out that journal. <laughs> like there is, there's so much there for that says so much about our field right now and like where where our field is going and how far-reaching our work is. Yeah, it is interesting to go back to that notion of a collective memory. It seems like you know, as a as a collection of a um, as a collection that tries to represent a particular moment in the discipline, it kind of requires us to adapt kind of on the fly, right? As new forms of scholarship are being circulated, as new forms of composing and methodologies kind of pop up to represent that work, to circulate it, even to get it to the reading groups sometimes requires different, you know, meth different methods than the past year did. I know we had an issue um, last year with a, um, an article that engaged with comics and the way that the printing was going to work, it just wasn't going to kind of come out right when it, when it came time to actually publish it. So we had to have a digital version and then a print version, and we had to kind of navigate that. And I think that, you know, that presents challenges, but it also shows you kind of the changes in the field, what's coming out, and, you know, how collections like this, there to kind of survive, need to adapt with those changes. So um, I think as our job gets harder in terms of uh, circulation and stuff like that, I think it actually is a representative of a good thing for the field. The scholarship is getting more diverse and uh, uh, in some cases more engaging, I think. I think we're something like 68 days away from the end of the year. And I know we're excited to put this year behind us, many of us. So let's talk about the future. What are future trajectories of Best Of? I'm not sure why you want to put 2020 behind you. I have no idea what you mean by that. But, uh, <laughs> but in all seriousness, I think uh, future trajectories are honestly extending a lot of the things that we've talked about today, right? Like how can we uh, make this um, collection more democratic, more, more democratic, more accessible? Um, how can we better integrate it into, I mean, I think one of the goals that the three of us have had as series editors is, how can this be useful in the classroom, right? That's one thing that I think we start a lot of meetings with, we end a lot of meetings with. So trying to develop new resources to accompany the articles, um, new ways for the authors and the reading groups to engage with the articles. Um, we mentioned a few times today, the supplemental materials that we include with each article. I think that's been um, really successful for a lot of the, um, the ultimate goals of the collections in terms of demystification, accessibility, all of these different things. So trying to find new ways um, to contextualize these articles, to offer resources to teachers and to students who are engaging with it. But like I said, you know, my previous answer about the way the collection is changing, I think the, um, 
the modes of that contextualization are going to have to change, right? So I think we've talked about um, things like, you know, interviews, right? Video or audio interviews, something like this, right? Like a podcast to accompany the collection, thinking about podcasts um, alongside articles, right? Like really trying to expand the notion of best of, right? To use that, um, that label as generative rather than restrictive. Um, so I think it's just kind of like future trajectories are continuing to build the work that um, the collection set out from the beginning to do, but then also thinking about the way it has to change alongside the changing field. Um, whether that's um, through multimodal kind of elements, whether that's through expanding um, reading groups, the ways that they respond to text, uh, all of those things. So I think we're just really excited uh, for the multiple directions that we can take it in while we have uh, our hands on it. I completely agree with Charlie. Um, and I think another way that, you know, one of the future trajectories is always making sure that we're, you know, I think all of us are right now assistant professors, but also thinking about that next generation of, you know, graduate students turned, um, whether it's professors or nonprofit workers or, you know, whatever, our, our PhD is changing. Um, so, of course, getting grad students involved. Um, and I think this year, you know, our grad students, um, Jenny and Brian and Berta, did such a great job with the introduction. And, like, they're also shaping the future trajectories by saying, like, here's what we notice. You know, we're in grad school now, and here's where we want to push the limits of the field. Here's what we think people haven't done enough of or where we want to, you know, want our work to go. So I think that's another um, key emphasis of this collection is getting um, scholars involved in graduate school when they can um, still shape that trajectory. Where can folks find Best Of online? You have a social media presence or a website and where can they access or purchase the collection? The best place uh, to access the collection is definitely on the Parlor Press website. We have uh, Dave Blakesley. Um, he has designed uh, the best of webpage. Um, and we have the PDF uh, version on there as well as you can order the print version. Um, and you can get uh, access to it there. And see even all, if anyone was interested in looking at, you know, the very first, I think 2010 was the first one, um, any of the collections since then. Um, and then if you want to be involved in, you know, future reading groups, um, you can always contact Dave through Parlor Plus or through our email, um, which is bestofretcomp at gmail.com. Thank you, Christy. <laughs> And really, really, really like reach out to us if you want to get involved in any way. Like I do a lot more of the back end work with the reading groups and all of that stuff. And uh, I love hearing from people who want to get involved. I love talking about the articles with folks who are ranking them, like really get involved, uh, get in touch with me. Um, and I'd be happy to chat about just the collection or uh, potential involvement or anything you want to chat about. Um, it really is a fun thing to kind of be a part of. And I love talking to folks about it. Excellent. Hopefully uh, more than a handful of our listeners today uh, reach out to Charlie, uh, fill up his inbox with volunteers. I want to give space now. Is there anything else that you want to add before you get off the call here today? I would just add that if you see anything that you want us to be doing, like, again, this is a democratic process. If you see that, you know, I don't think you're doing enough in this area, or I don't think you're shifting enough with the field, like, let us know. Like, we are so open to ideas. Um, and again, like, we, we do, we lean on our grad students as, you know, the next generation and what they're seeing. And, you know, there's only so much room for associate editors on our collection, but we can make room. Like, if you want to put in the work with us, um, we're happy to make room for you and listen to ideas and think about how we can all work together to kind of keep booming this collection forward. Thank you, everyone, for, for joining the call and, and taking part in the recording today. Thank you so much. I want to thank the editors of Best Of, Rhetoric and Composition, for joining me on this special episode of the Big Rhetorical Podcast. The Big Rhetorical Podcast 
finishes off season three now. We want to say thank you to our listeners around the globe. It's because of you that we are extending our reach and finding new audiences. And don't forget, we want to talk to you. So if you have a book, a project, an interesting topic, a symposium, or a conference coming up, reach out to us as we are now booking guests through Season 5. You can find more information about The Big Rhetorical Podcast at our website, thebigrhetoricalpodcast.weebly.com, and don't forget to follow us on Twitter, at The Big Red. Leave us a five-star rating and write us a review to help us enhance visibility on podcast platforms. Enjoy a few weeks off and catch up on older episodes. I'll be back with you in January. Until then, always be listening rhetorically. Mm-hmm.